Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, we're in, of course, a very special time, a particularly graced time of the year. I suppose all periods of the year are particularly graced when one is in the good graces of the Church. But we are in Lent, which which comes with very, very special graces and uh, rather interior graces of, of commiserating with Jesus and of kind of opening our hearts and souls a little bit more to the sacrifice of Jesus and what he did for us and a, and a kind of reciprocal dedication to perhaps uh, serve him a little bit better or, or love him a little bit better in the year that follows. And so in this uh, mood of Lent, um, which if I could say so is actually, it sounds in a way it sounds like it's sad, but really it's very happy because it's all a, the story of love. It's a story of Jesus' love for us and how much he did for us and, and how much we love him in return and so forth. Um, in that spirit, I thought I would read some more from Anne Catherine Emmerich. She's a blessed. She uh, was a visionary saint, a visionary blessed of the 19th century, kind of a victim soul, um, uh, bed-bound, suffering, suffering the stigmata every Friday. For a number of years, she lived only on the Eucharist. And, but she did have the consolation of very, very frequent uh, periods of going into vision and seeing various scenes from the life of Jesus. Um, also, by the way, from the Old Testament also. And so I thought I'd read from her vision of the agony in the garden. I thought that would set the tone rather nicely for, for continuing our, our descent into Lent, so to speak. So that's what I'll be doing today. I, uh, this is a live call-in program. The number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And I will be taking uh, a short musical break about halfway through, as I usually do. And uh, if you wish to call in with any questions or comments, um, I invite you to do so, especially during the break. And then coming out of the break, I'll, I'll look for calls and, and take your calls. And then, as time permits, continue with the reading. So I think that's all the, all the bookkeeping. So let me just begin. We're reading from Anne Catherine Emmerich's Visions of the Life of Christ, um, her description of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, Jesus in Gethsemane. Of course, this is taking place on Holy Thursday. It's, it's taking place immediately following the Last Supper and the first uh, Eucharist, of course, at the Last Supper. When Jesus left the upper room with the eleven, his soul was already troubled and his sadness on the increase. He led the eleven to the Mount of Olives by an unfrequented path through the valley of Jehoshaphat. As they left the house, I saw the moon, which is not yet quite full, rising above the mountain. While walking in the valley of Jehoshaphat with the apostles, the Lord said that he would one day return there, though not poor and powerless as he was then, to judge the world. 
Then would men tremble with fear and cry out, Ye mountains, cover us. But the disciples understood him not. They thought, as several times before during the evening, that from weakness and exhaustion he was wandering in speech. Sometimes they walked on, at other times they stood talking to him. Jesus said to them, All of you shall be scandalized in me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be dispersed. But after I shall be risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. The apostles were still full of the enthusiasm and devotion inspired by the reception of the Most Holy Sacrament and the loving, solemn discourse of Jesus afterward. They crowded eagerly around him and expressed their love in different ways, protesting that they never could, they never would abandon him. But as Jesus continued to speak in the same strain, Peter exclaimed, Although all should be scandalized in thee, I will never be scandalized in thee. The Lord replied, Amen. I say to thee that in this night before the cock crows, thou wilt deny me three times. Yea, though I should die with thee, I shall not deny thee. And so said all the others. They walked and paused alternately, and Jesus' sadness continued to increase. The apostles tried to dissipate it by human arguments, assuring him that just the opposite of what he dreaded would take place. But finding their efforts vain and fruitless, they grew weary, and began already to doubt and fall into temptation. They crossed the brook Cedron, but not by the bridge which later on Jesus was led bound, for they had taken another way. Gethsemane on Mount Olivet, where they were going, was in a direct line one half hour from the upper room, for it was fifteen minutes from the upper room to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and the same distance from the latter to Gethsemane. This spot, in which during his last days Jesus had sometimes passed the night with his apostles and instructed them, consisted of a large pleasure garden surrounded by a hedge. It contained some magnificent shrubbery and a great many fruit trees. Outside the garden were a few deserted houses, open for any that might wish to lodge there. Several persons, as well as the apostles, had keys to this garden, which was used both as a place of recreation and of prayer. The Garden of Olives was separated by a road from that of Gethsemane and was higher up the mountain. It was open, surrounded only by a rampart of earth. On, there were seats and benches and roomy caverns, cheerful and cool. Whoever wished might find here a place suited to prayer and meditation. The spot chosen by Jesus was the wildest. It was about nine o'clock when Jesus reached Gethsemane with the disciples. Darkness had fallen upon the earth, but the moon was lighting up the sky. Jesus was very sad. He announced to the apostles the approach of danger, and they became uneasy. Jesus bade eight of them to remain in the Garden of Gethsemane, where there was a kind of summer house. Remain here, he said, while I go to my own place to pray. He took Peter, John, and James the Greater with him, crossed the road, and went on for a few minutes until he reached the Garden of Olives further up the mountain. He was inexpressibly sad, for he felt his approaching agony and temptation. John asked how he, who had always consoled them, could now be so dejected. He replied, 
My soul is sorrowful even unto death. He glanced around, and all, all sides saw anguish and temptation gathering about him like dense clouds filled with frightful pictures. It was at that moment that he said to the three apostles, Remain here and watch with me. Pray, yes, lest ye enter into temptation. And they stayed in that place. Jesus went a few steps forward, but the frightful visions pressed around him to such a degree that, filled with alarm, he turned to the left from the apostles and plunged down into a grotto formed by an overhanging rock. The apostles remained in a hollow to the right above. The grotto in which Jesus concealed himself was about six feet deep. The earth sank gently toward the back, and plants and shrubs hang from the rocks towering over the entrance, made it a place into which no eye could penetrate. When Jesus left the apostles, I saw a great number of frightful figures surrounding him in an ever-narrowing circle. His sorrow and anguish increased. He withdrew tremblingly into the back of the cave, like one seeking shelter from a violent tempest, and there he prayed. I saw the awful visions following him into the grotto and becoming ever more and more distinct. It was as though that narrow cave encompassed the horrible, the agonizing vision of all the sins with their delights and their punishments, committed from the fall of our first parents until the end of the world. For it was here on Mount Olivet that Adam and Eve, driven from paradise, had first descended upon the inhospitable earth, and in that very grotto had they in fear and alarm bewailed their misery. I felt in a most lively manner that Jesus, in resigning himself to the sufferings that awaited him and sacrificing himself to divine justice in satisfaction for the sins of the world, caused in a certain manner his divinity to return into the most holy trinity. This he did in order, out of infinite love, in his most pure and sensitive, his most innocent and true humanity, supported by the love of his human heart alone, this he did to devote himself to endure for the sins of the world the greatest excess of agony and pain. To make satisfaction for the origin and development of all kinds of sin and guilty pleasures, the most merciful Jesus, through love for us sinners, received into his own heart the root of all expiatory reconciliation and saving pains. He allowed those infinite sufferings in satisfaction for endless sins to pierce through, to extend through all the members of his sacred body, all the faculties of his holy soul. Thus, entirely given up to his humanity, he fell on his face, calling upon God in unspeakable sorrow and anguish, he saw in countless forms all the sins of the world with their innate hideousness. He took all upon himself and offered himself in his prayer to satisfy the justice of his heavenly Father for all that guilt by his own sufferings. But Satan, who under a frightful form and with furious mockery, moved around among all this abomination, became at each moment more violently enraged against him. He evoked before the eyes of his soul visions of the sins of men, one more frightful than the other, and constantly addressed to the sacred humanity of Jesus such words as, What? Wilt thou take this upon thyself also? 
Art thou ready to endure its penalty? How can thou satisfy for this? From that point in the heavens in which the sun appears between 10 and 11 in the morning, a narrow path of light streamed toward Jesus, and on it I saw a file of angels coming down to him. They imparted to him fresh strength and vigor. The rest of the grotto was filled with the frightful and horrible visions of sin and with the evil spirits mocking and tempting. Jesus took all upon himself. In the midst of this confusion of abomination, his heart, the only one that loved God and man perfectly, shrank in terror and anguish from the horror, the burden of all those sins. Ah, I saw there so many things. A whole year would not suffice to relate them. When now this enormous mass of sin and iniquity had passed before the soul of Jesus in an ocean of horrible visions, and he had offered himself as the expiatory sacrifice for all, had implored that all their punishment and chastisement might fall upon him. I saw in vision all those things for which the Lord offered himself in atonement, and with him I bore the burden of many of the accusations that the tempter made against him. For among those visions of the sins of the world that the Savior took upon himself, I saw my own numerous transgressions. Ah, the Lord writhed like a worm under the weight of his sorrow and agony. It was the great, with the greatest difficulty that I restrained myself while all these charges were brought against the innocent Savior. At first Jesus knelt calmly in prayer, but after a while his soul shrank in fright from the multitude and heinousness, heinousness of man's sins and ingratitude against God. So overpowering was the sadness, the agony of heart which fell upon him, that trembling and shuddering he prayed imploringly, Abba, Father, if it be possible, remove this chalice from me. My Father, all things are possible to thee. Take this chalice from me. Then, recovering himself, he added, But not what I will, but what thou wilt. His will and the Father's were one. But now that through love he had delivered himself up to the weakness of his human nature, he shuddered at the thought of death. I saw the grotto around him filled with frightful figures. I saw the sins, the wickedness, the vices, the torments, the ingratitude of men torturing and crushing him, and the horror of death, the terror that he experienced as man at the greatness of the expiatory suffering soon to come upon him, I saw pressing around him and assailing him under the form of the most hideous specters. Wringing his hands, he swayed from side to side, and the sweat of agony covered him. He trembled and shuddered. He arose, but his trembling knees could scarcely support him. His countenance was quite disfigured and almost unrecognizable. His lips were white, and his hair stood on end. It was about half-past ten when he staggered to his feet and bathed in sweat and often falling, tottered rather than walked to where the three disciples were awaiting him. He ascended to the left of the grotto and up to a terrace upon which they were resting near one another, supported on their arm, the back of one turned toward the breast of his neighbor. 
exhausted with fatigue, sorrow, and anxiety under temptation, they had fallen asleep. Jesus went to them like a man overwhelmed with sorrow whom terror drives to the company of his friends, and also like a faithful shepherd who, though himself trembling to the utmost, looks after his herd which he knows to be in danger, for he knew that they too were in anguish and temptation. All along the short distance, I saw that the frightful forms never left him. When he found the apostles sleeping, he clasped his hands, and sinking down by them with, from grief and exhaustion, he said, Simon, sleepest thou? At these words they awoke and raised him up. In his spiritual dereliction he said, What? Could you not watch one hour with me? When they found him so terrified and disfigured, so pale, trembling, and saturated with sweat, shuddering and shaking, his voice feeble and stammering, they were altogether at a loss what to think. Had he not appeared surrounded by the light so well known to them? Had he not appeared surrounded by the light so well known to them, they would not have recognized him as Jesus. John said to him, Master, what has befallen thee? Shall I call the other disciples? Shall we take to flight? Jesus answered, Were I to live, teach, and work miracles for thirty-three years longer, it would not suffice for the accomplishment of what I have to fulfill before this time tomorrow. Do not call the eight. I have left them where they are because they could not see me in this suffering state without being scandalized at me. They would fall into temptation, forget many things that I have said to them, and lose confidence in me. But you, who have seen the Son of Man transfigured, may also see him in this hour of darkness and complete dereliction of soul. Nevertheless, watch and pray, lest ye fall into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. These last words referred both to himself and to the apostles. Jesus returned to the grotto, his anguish on the increase. The apostles, seeing him leave them thus, stretched out their hands after him, wept, threw themselves into one another's arms, and asked, What does this mean? What is the matter with him? He is perfectly desolate. And then, covering their heads, they began in great anxiety to pray. All thus, all thus far related occupied about one hour and a half, counting from Jesus' entrance into the Garden of Olives. The anxiety that marked all of Jesus' last actions on that evening greatly disquieted them, and they wandered around the Mount Olivet seeking a hiding place for themselves. When Jesus went back into the grotto carrying his load of sadness with him, he cast himself face downward on the ground, his arms extended, and prayed to his heavenly Father. And now began for his soul a new struggle, which lasted three quarters of an hour. Angels came and showed him in a long series of visions, and in all its extent, what he would have to endure for the atonement of sin. They showed him the beauty and excellence of man, the image of God before the fall, along with his deformity and corruption after the fall. They showed how every sin originates from that first sin, 
They pointed out the essence and significations of concupiscence, its terrible effects upon the powers of the soul, as well as upon the physical well-being of man, and also the essence and signification of all the sufferings entailed as chastisements by that same lusting after pleasure. They showed him in the expiatory sufferings that awaited him, first a suffering that would reach to both body and soul, a punishment that would comprehend in its intensity all the penalty due to divine justice for all the sins of the whole human race. Secondly, they showed him a suffering which, in order to be satisfactory, should chastise the crimes of the whole human race in that humanity which alone was sinless, namely the most sacred humanity of the Son of God. That sacred humanity through love assumed all the guilt of mankind with the penalty due to it. Consequently, it had also to gain the victory over man's abhorrence of pain and death. All this the angel showed Jesus, sometimes appearing in whole choirs and exhibiting row after row of pictures, and sometimes displaying only the physical features, excuse me, only the principal features of his passion. I saw them pointing with raised finger to the visions as they appeared, and without hearing any voice I understood what they said. No tongue can express the horror or the anguish that overwhelmed the soul of Jesus at the sight of these visions of expiatory suffering. He understood not only the consequence of every species of concupiscence, but also its own particular expiatory chastisement, the significance of all the instruments of torture connected with it, so that not only the thought of the instrument made him shudder, but also the sinful rage of him that invented it, the fury and wickedness of all that have ever used it, and the impatience of all, whether innocent or guilty, who have been tortured with it. All these tortures and afflictions Jesus perceived in an interior contemplation, and the sight filled him with such horror that a bloody sweat started from the pores of his sacred body. While the adorable humanity of Christ was thus agonizing and writhing under this excess of suffering, I saw among the angels a feeling of compassion for him. There seemed to be a pause in which they appeared desirous of giving him consolation, and I saw them praying to that effect before the throne of God. For an instant there seemed to be a struggle between the mercy and justice of God and that love which was sacrificing itself. I also had a vision of God not as before seated upon his throne, but in a less clearly defined though luminous figure. I saw the divine nature of the Son in the person of the Father and, as it were, withdrawn into his bosom. The person of the Holy Spirit of the Holy Ghost was proceeding from the Father and the Son. He was, as it were, between them, and yet there was only one God. But who can speak of such things? I had more an interior perception of all this than a vision under human forms. In it I was shown that the divine will of Christ withdrew more into the Father in order to permit his most sacred humanity to suffer all those things for whose mitigation and warding off the human will struggled and prayed in agony, so that the Godhead of Christ being one with the Father, all that for whose removal his manhood prayed to the Father should weigh upon his humanity alone. 
I saw all this at the instant of the angel's sympathetic emotion when they conceived the desire to console Jesus, who did, in fact, at the same moment, receive some alleviation. But now these visions disappeared, and the angels, with their soothing compassion, retired from the Lord, to whose soul a new sphere of agony, more violent even than the last, opened up. When the Redeemer on Mount Olivet as a true and real human being delivered himself to the temptation of human abhorrence against suffering and death, when he took upon himself also the vanquishing of that abhorrence, the endurance of which forms a part of every suffering, the tempter was permitted to do to him what he does to every mortal who desires to offer himself a sacrifice in any holy cause. In the first part of the Lord's agony, Satan, with furious mockery, set before him the immensity of the debt that he was about to assume, and he carried the temptation so far as to represent the actions of the Redeemer himself as not free from faults. After that, in the second agony, there was displayed before Jesus in all its greatness and intrinsic bitterness the expiatory suffering necessary to discharge that immense debt. This was shown to him by the angels, for it belongs not to Satan to show that expiation is possible. The father of lies and despair never exhibits to men the works of divine mercy. But when Jesus, with heartfelt abandonment to the will of his heavenly father, had victoriously resisted these assaults, a succession of new and terrifying visions passed before his soul. He experienced that uneasiness felt by every human heart on the point of making some great sacrifice, the questioning doubt, what advantage, what return shall I reap from this sacrifice, arose in the soul of the Lord, and the sight of the awful future overwhelmed his loving heart. Well, um, I have been reading nonstop for quite a while there. I've been reading from... uh, um, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich's account of her vision of Jesus uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before the crucifixion, of course, after he left the um, upper room where he had just celebrated the Last Supper and the First Catholic Mass, and his agony in the Garden. And we have come to about halfway through the program. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with your host, me, Roy Shoman. And I've been reading this account of the agony in the garden uh, as a kind of a Lenten gesture to bring us more deeply into the mood of Lent and to make us more aware, if possible, of the suffering that Jesus endured for our salvation and what it cost him and the love and fidelity which, frankly, we owe to him in return. But usually about halfway through the program, I stop for a short musical break, and I'll do that now. And this is also a live call-in program. The number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. So if you wish to call in with a question or a comment, uh, it's a good time to do so. Please do so during the break. And when I come out of the break, uh, the first thing I'll do is, is go to the call board and take any calls that might have come in. But with that, let's uh, now turn to a short musical break. 
and I'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening again to Roy Shoman on Radio Maria, Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, and uh, back in a few minutes. Well, I'm going to return now to um, to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, and um, I'll have to um, do a little bit of skipping passages because I want to get to the end of the story. So with that, I am returning to Anne Catherine Emmerich's account of Jesus' suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus beheld with bitter anguish all the ingratitude, the corruption of Christendom, past, present, and future. While these visions were passing before him, the voice of the tempter of his humanity was constantly heard whispering, See, can you undergo such sufferings in the sight of such ingratitude? These words, added to the mockery and abominations that he beheld in the rapidly changing visions, pressed with such violence upon him that his most sacred humanity was crushed under a weight of unspeakable agony. Christ, the Son of Man, writhed in anguish and wrung his hands. As though overwhelmed, he fell repeatedly on his knees, while so violent a struggle went on between his human will and his repugnance to suffer so much for so thankless a race, that the sweat poured from him in a stream of heavy drops of blood to the ground. Yes, he was so oppressed that he glanced around as though seeking help, as though calling upon heaven and earth and the stars of the firmament to witness his anguish. It seemed to me that I heard him crying out, Oh, is it possible that such ingratitude can be endured? Witness ye my extreme affliction. In his sore distress, Jesus raised his voice from some instance in loud cries of anguish. I saw that the three apostles sprang up in fright. With raised hands, they listened to Jesus' cries and were on the point of hastening to him. But Peter stopped James and John, saying, Stay here, I will go to him. He hurried forward and entered the grotto. Master, he cried, What has happened to thee? But he paused in terror at the sight of Jesus, bathed in blood and trembling with fear. Jesus made no answer and appeared not to notice Peter. Then Peter returned to the other two and reported that Jesus had answered him only by sighs and groans. This news increased the sorrow and anxiety of the apostles. They covered their heads and sat weeping and praying with many tears. I turned again to the heavenly bridegroom in his bitter agony. The frightful visions of the ingratitude and misdeeds of future generations whose debt he was taking upon himself, whose chastisement he was about to endure, overwhelmed him with their ever-increasing multitude and horror. His struggle against the repugnance of his human nature for suffering continued, and several times I heard him cry out, Father, is it possible to endure all this? O Father, if this chalice cannot pass from me, may thy will be done. Among this throng of apparitions typical of the outrages offered to divine mercy, I saw Satan under various abominable forms, each bearing reference to the species of guilt then exhibited. Sometimes he appeared as a great black figure in human shape, and again as a tiger, a fox, a wolf, a dragon, a serpent. Not that he really took any of these forms, but he displayed the chief characteristics of their nature, joined to other hideous appearances. 
They were symbols of discord, of abomination, of contradiction, of horror, of sin. In a word, they were diabolical shapes. And by these hellish forms, Jesus beheld innumerable multitudes of men urged on, seduced, strangled, and torn to pieces, men for whose redemption from the power of Satan he was about to enter upon the way that led to the bitter death of the cross. Excuse me while I skip. <laughs> really skip near the end. When Jesus returned to the disciples, he found them, as at first, lying on their side near the wall of the terrace, their heads covered and asleep. The Lord said to them, This is not the time to sleep. You should arise and pray, for behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us go. Behold, the traitor is approaching. Oh, it were better for him that he had never been born. The apostles sprang up affrighted and looked around anxiously. They had scarcely recovered themselves when Peter exclaimed vehemently, Master, I will call the others that we may defend thee. But Jesus pointed out to them at some distance in the valley, though still on the other side of this brook, Cedron, a band of armed men approaching with torches. He told the apostles that one of that band had betrayed him. This they looked upon as impossible. Jesus repeated this and several other things with calm composure, again exhorted them to console his mother, and said, Let us go to meet them. I shall deliver myself without resistance into the hands of my enemies. With these words he left the Garden of Olives with the three apostles and went out to meet the minions on the road that separated it from the Garden of Gethsemane. So thus ends the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane until, of course, the soldiers with Judas Iscariot approached and began the arrest of Jesus. So this was really the opening scene of the Passion of the Christ, the opening scene of Jesus' Passion. And it's very important to remember that all of that pain and suffering that Jesus suffered 2,000 or so years ago, to that huge, inconceivable ocean of pain and suffering was added the pain and suffering that was necessary for the remission of your sin and my sin. And every time you sin or I sin, we are increasing the suffering of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Now, this show is called Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, so I will add a one-minute Jewish note to this, which is that for many centuries the Jews have been hated, actually, by good Christians and good Catholics for having caused the passion of Jesus. But already at the Council of Trent in the beginning of the 16th century, the Council of Trent dogmatically stated that it's not the Jews who are responsible for the suffering of Christ. It is us every time we sin. It is our sin that causes the suffering of Christ in his passion. So with that, let me leave that as a kind of final Lenten note for today's show. But 
it would not make sense to commiserate, to feel sympathy for Christ and his passion, to feel sympathy for all that he's suffering, and not recognize our role in causing that suffering. Each and every time we sinned before, in other words, before this day, for the, all of our past lives up to this moment, and for all of our lives between now and the moment we die, every sin we commit is adding to the suffering of Jesus during his passion. So with that, you've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Showman. And I wish you a very um, deep and meaningful and holy rest of Lent. And I invite you to join us again next week, same time, same place, for Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Bye for now.